Hello and welcome to Progressive News Network, the COVID report. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. Tonight, I've got Kardik Krishnayer. We'll be discussing some things having to do with the pandemic, as we do every week. All right, we moved this segment off of the Sunday show so that we would have a little bit more time, a little bit more space to spread out. And this is the result. And I hope you enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, Cardit Krishnayer. Hey, Cardik, I know you've been following an aspect of COVID with regard to college sports, specifically college football. And I think this issue could be uh, more important than people think it is, actually. So tell our listeners a little bit about what is going on with regard to COVID-19 and the college football season. Yeah, so I I think it's pretty straightforward, which is that uh, college football is uh, is in a position where uh, this pandemic has not been contained in this country and in this state. This state is particularly obsessed with that sport, as I think uh, all the listeners appreciate. Uh, the uh, the fan bases of college football teams uh, of, of the sport in general tends to lean right. There 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 are more conservatives than than uh, liberals. Not to say that there are no liberals that watch college football. I'm not saying that. Some people think that I've been saying that the last few days on uh, on social media and have told me like my that my position is not valid on uh, college football because I am from the left. But um, I'm not saying that, but I am saying that fan bases tend to tend to lean conservative and they tend to be um, college football tends to be more popular outside urban areas um, and tends to be more popular in southern and western states. And this, this is just this is just the reality. So there is a little bit of a red-blue divide on it. And I think the issue here now is, can college football in the midst of a pandemic be safely played? Can you have teams, and this isn't like uh, the sports that have, uh, the professional sports that have put all their people into into bubbles in Orlando, Major League Soccer, and uh, the NBA, the WNBA, uh, the Women's Soccer League did the same thing in Utah. These are student athletes who have to go to class, uh, have to travel, have to do all the normal things you would do. Can you safely conduct this sport? Can you then also safely um, have teams travel and have fans attend games and have players interacting or student athletes interacting with other students who – you know, aren't going to be locked down on their college campuses. They're going to want to go home and see their families at some point. They're going to want to go home uh, and back to, uh, to wherever they're from. They, they, they're also going to want to, you know, maybe uh, leave campus every now and then. So I, I think from a medical perspective, the United States has not controlled this virus properly. We know that. The United States is not in a position to have a return of sports in, in, in a normal fashion. And, what I've seen happen in Europe with soccer leagues in the era of COVID is that they suspended play completely until the virus was on the back foot. And once the virus was on the back foot, there were incredible safety protocols put in place to resume play with no fans, with bubbles, 
with uh, just about every precaution that could be taken. And these are for countries that, until last week, the entire European Union had gone six straight weeks where they had registered less cases collectively. The entire EU, 450 million people, then the state of Florida, less new cases. So um, I think the case is pretty, I think it's pretty straightforward. You don't play. However, this week, unsurprisingly, Republican politicians started to wade into this uh, situation, uh, led by the president himself, uh, agitating consistently, tweeting about college football, talking about it in his news conferences. And then um, Jim Jordan, Governor DeSantis, and many others wading into this territory. I believe college football represents the bread and circuits for their base in the South and Midwest, which is that they want um, this sport to go on because it, it, it enables the cognitive dissonance and anti-intellectualism and uh, carefree selfishness that has allowed the United States to get to this point. It is their emphasis on, anti, uh, on this sport, their obsession with this sport, the anti-intellectualism connected with it that has allowed them to, take, to, to, to act like COVID-19 is no big deal and that this is all some sort of left-wing hoax and uh, this is uh, an excuse for, uh, for the Democrats to, uh, to torpedo the economy and Joe Biden to stay in this bunker in Wilmington and all, all the, the, the conspiracy theories they're throwing out there. So I think um, it, it, it would be best that college football weren't played for, 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 for uh public health purposes. I also think it's important it's not played now because it is the attempt by um, the right to circumvent uh, an open and honest discussion about how we have handled this pandemic by distracting the public, the most vulnerable elements in the public too, in the states in the South where, we, where the virus is out of control, like in Florida, um, from, from paying attention to this uh, and, 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 and can finally defeating this virus. So it's the bread and circuses, basically, of, uh, of what Trump is trying to do now. It's college football. Okay, so the PAC conference and the Big Ten conference have both said, no, we're not doing college football season in the fall. But that leaves Southeastern Conference and Southern Conference, and they still haven't weighed in on this yet. Uh, so what do you see happening how do you see that part of this playing out? It's no coincidence to me. The states with the bulk of Pac-12 teams and the bulk of uh, uh, Big Ten teams have Democratic governors, right? And, uh, and uh, governors who probably either didn't interfere in this process or nudged it along saying, hey, listen to your doctors, listen to your health experts, look at the data. But the people generating the data are probably on their, on their campuses, right? I mean, it's universities that we're relying on in this, this period. Uh, of uh, of great crisis in this country where we need data, we need reason, we need science. Um, in the South, on the other hand, most of these states do not have Democratic governors, as we know, and uh, the, they have state university systems like here in Florida where the university presidents have been selected by Republican uh, members of the executive branch or Republican legislators. In fact, Florida State University's president, John Thrasher, is the former House Speaker, and the former chairman of the Republican Party of Florida. Yet he's the president of one of the big football playing schools in the South. The South. And you can go through Georgia, South Carolina, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Texas, the, the states that are, that, that are involved, Missouri, that have this. Uh, Missouri's, uh, by the way, in the Southeastern Conference, they're not in uh, 
uh, the Big Ten, even though geographically you would think maybe they would be in the conference with all the Midwestern schools. Um, that uh, there, there is, I think, a political pressure on those conferences to play football and to reject whatever the scientists and data uh, scientists and, and people who are involved with medicine on their campuses and in their state university systems are telling them. I mean, I am sure the people at Shams and the people at the medical school at the University of Florida are saying uh, the Gators shouldn't be playing football this fall. I mean, I, I, yes, the, there is a different agenda at stake. And then you'll hear about economics, right, because that's, that's the, uh, the common Republican uh, fallback on everything, right? This will cost people jobs. This will cost the economy. Well, okay, I can see that. But this would not be an issue if they had done what they were supposed to do for the last four to six months in this state and in other states in the South, okay? So if this is going to hurt the economy, yeah, well, it's the fault of, of, of Governor DeSantis and of Governor Kemp in, in, uh, in Georgia and uh, uh, every other governor in the South, right? It's their fault because they didn't take this seriously. And in Florida's case, it's inexcusable because we're a seasonal state with travel anyway. We needed to, if we had to shut down for five months through the, the uh, spring and summer, it would have been appropriate so that we were ready to go in the fall when people come to Florida, when snowbirds come here and spend their money, and people with vacation homes come here, and people fill up cruise ships. They, they fly from all over the world to fill up cruise ships in the holiday season, leaving from Port Canaveral, Port Everglades, Port of Miami, Port of Tampa. We're not going to have any of that this uh, winter. And that's the fault of Governor DeSantis and, and the Republicans, and uh, broad, more broadly speaking, the fault of, of President Trump, who has, uh, quite frankly, the United States, we talked about this previously, Brooke, so I, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but it, it, it's still so important. The United States has been discredited in the, in the eyes of the global community by our pandemic response. We have been embarrassed. And the, and the damage uh, is, uh, is going to keep coming. So if Republicans make the argument, oh, well, we have to play college football for the economy. We have to do this for the economy. We have to do that. Okay, I, I get that argument. But the reason why we're in the position where we have to cancel this stuff and close this stuff is because of you. And that's the, and that's the bottom line. Yeah, it just kills me that we could be in such a better place right now if we had just stayed locked down a little bit longer we uh, could have pushed this back a little bit further and it's people in florida and central florida in particular who are paying the steepest price for this there's a great article that was in common dreams uh back in june and it's called uh the great coronavirus depression four key factors provide a roadmap for historical context that's a good just general uh, economic piece. But in here are some stats on the hospitality or leisure and hospitality sector. So for instance, this sector fell in April by 7.7 .7 million jobs. That's 47% of people in leisure and hospitality have lost their job. And Kardik, I know that one of the things that you're really interested in is information, trade information within the airline and travel industry. Are there any clues within that information recently as to uh, reading the tea leaves, how Florida may or may not be recovering from COVID at this point? Yeah. And, 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 
we've got a situation now also where uh, airlines, uh, the, 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 the uh, aviation industry, commercial airlines, have begun to, to reload a lot of their flights and resume a lot of their flights to Florida in their reservation systems. As, as we reopened in May, uh, we saw mm-hmm. airlines in their reservations restore service uh, for Florida for August, September, and then onward October, November, December. What we have now seen in the last two, two or three weeks is those airlines, by and large, pull out of the Florida services that they were, uh, they were resuming. And so this, this past week, we had a, a number of notable, uh, notable uh, things happen. One was that uh, Aer Lingus, the, uh, the Irish airline state, fly, uh, state carrier, uh, not, it's not it's, it's the Irish flag carrier, I shouldn't say state carrier, they've been privatized, but um, they, they've uh, terminated service to Miami for the, for the winter season, which is a pretty big blow. We get a lot of tourists from Ireland. Uh, Emirates, which is, of course, the largest international airline in the world, appears to have withdrawn Fort Lauderdale permanently from their reservation system. They were supposed to resume service September 1st. They had announced that. Uh, their Orlando service, including two cities in the state, Fort Lauderdale and Orlando, uh, Fort Lauderdale appears to have been permanently terminated. Orlando has been pushed back once again. The resumption was supposed to be first in August. Then it was pushed back to September. Now it looks like it's bookable, effective October 2nd, but I wouldn't be shocked if that gets pushed back or that gets just terminated again, just like the Fort Lauderdale flight also. Uh, we saw the uh, Brazilian airline, Azul, uh, they are going to resume their flight from Sao Paulo to Fort Lauderdale. However, uh, their flights from uh, Sao Paulo, Belo Horizonte, and Recife to uh, Orlando have all been canceled through the winter season, and their flights from those other cities other than Sao Paulo to Fort Lauderdale have been canceled. So basically, they used to fly I think from uh, Fort Lauderdale, five places in Brazil, and Orlando to four places. Uh, so that's nine total flights. They'll have one total flight from Brazil to Fort Lauderdale uh, to Florida, which is to Fort Lauderdale uh, for the winter season. Uh, same thing with U.S. airlines with our domestic carriers. So people are not going to be coming here. Okay, this is not. There's not going to just like be a magic wand solution. People make their travel plans and their travel reservations if they're traveling in November and December. They make those decisions in June and July. So what ended up happening is that Florida's numbers spiked and those June and July flights were not being booked by the people who were the targets, the airlines withdrew the service, which means even if Florida were to somehow eradicate the virus in the next three to four weeks, chances are those flights aren't coming back. The cruise ships, that, the, cruise, um, the cruises by which that a lot of those flights would link up with, because it's not just travel to Florida, right, where people are going to the amusement parks. A lot of these tra- this travel involves amusement parks, beaches, and then taking cruises that, that start in Florida and end in Florida. And we'll go to wherever in the, in the meantime in, in, while, while they're out uh, to sea. Uh, those cruises have all been, uh, my understanding, is part of the airline pullbacks. I don't follow the cruise industry as closely, but, but what I've been told is that the airlines pulled the airlines have pulled service, particularly the Emirates flight from Fort Lauderdale, was canned after they had talked to uh, the cruise operators, Carnival and Royal Caribbean, who said, "No, we are not going to resume this service in October, November, and December because of the situation in Florida." And plus, I think there are other issues with cruises too, right? On top of uh, uh, on top of things in the in the age of COVID, on top of the Florida situation. So, bottom line here is. Um, we are now looking at what was going to be a three or four more, a month economic problem as a multiple year economic problem. We've gone from three or four months to three to four years of economic damage. 
Now, all of this is very strange considering President Trump is running for re-election, and the one thing he had going for him was his, uh, his economic or his purported economic uh, um, uh, successes, you know, creating McDonald's and stuff, right, like Rick Scott did here in Florida, same sort of uh, low-end, low low-wage, uh, low-skill jobs. But, you know, those people are voters, and, and uh, he was going to win Florida before COVID, right? Biden wasn't going to win Florida. It was going to be a three- or four-point Trump victory. Trump was probably going to win Michigan. Uh, he probably would have been reelected. So the thing that really is strange to me, Brooke, is when all of these things end up crashing the economy, why did they have such cognitive dissonance? Why were the, the Republicans so eager to reopen? Why were the Republicans so eager to reject science and data when listening to the scientists, following the data, and, and, and having an organized shutdown where, you run the vi- where the virus runs its course, and then you reopen gradually before the election, before people start voting. Like, like I said, in Europe, they started gradually reopening June, July. Uh, really, the UK, was, it's, it's been the last uh, three or four weeks. Uh, but uh, it would have worked out perfectly for Trump's re-election. So that's the thing that, that bugs me. Are these people so myopic? Are they so wed to their conspiracy theories and dislike of science and dislike of intellectualism that they've essentially torpedoed their own, uh, you know, terminated their own uh, chances of reelection? Well, this is the crisis of reason once again, where you have lawmakers and business leaders who are willing to sacrifice their children and their institutions to, you know, the gods of Wall Street or whatever. So they get a little bit of a bump in the in the Dow Jones average. But at the end of the day, they're not going to get out of this exchange or this transaction what they want because they're paying for it in lives and in the market economy long term. So while it's deeply irrational behavior on the one hand, it is actually quite predictable that these particular people would go about things in this way. Because what we're talking about here is a group of people who are behaving more like members of a cult than members of a political party. And sure, we laugh, and it's easy to make a joke out of uh, religious uh, conservatives and religious conservatives acting like cult members, but there is a long history of the coming together of right-wing religious ideology and right-wing political ideology and the interests of the business class. And the people who came out of the Southern Baptist Convention in the 1970s and 1980s, their, their big awakening politically was the 1980 election when they, uh, uh, they, they rejected a born-again Christian and Jimmy Carter and put into office um, Ronald Reagan, who uh, uh, you know, was, a, was an actor and paid lip service to them. Right? That, that was really the defining moment. And so since 1980, they've had all this influence. And now they have so much influence over the Republican Party and have such a, a like-minded figure in Donald Trump that there is no chance for science, data, or reason in that party anymore. And I think uh, when you mention religion, that's what it does go back to. I hate to just say it because I'm someone who has criticized the Democratic Party for being too secular. I think that the Democratic Party needs to, to reawaken and re, reconnect with, uh, 
with, with, with religion in its own way. But, um, I, I mean, I'd rather be completely secular and have no religion in this country than, than what the Republicans are currently, which means because of the religion, there's no science, there's no reason, there's no data, there's no place for critical thought. And to your point about data, we have a specific problem in the state of Florida with regard to getting coronavirus or COVID-19 data. The uh, Florida Department of Health uh, broke with Rebecca Jones, who is now uh, you know, going it on her own with her own COVID statistics site. She tweeted out today, uh, or re- retweeted from the Florida Department of Health, that uh, that the DOH received a backlog of testing data from Nisnik Lab Corp in Miami dating back to June 23rd. The lab reported over 4,000 cases occurring over the past seven weeks, but which have not been reported to Department of Health until today. Now, combine that with the fact that we can't even get the numbers on how many tests had been given so that we can figure out what the positivity rate is. So, you know, we could have the raw data on how many positive cases there are, but without knowing the percentage of those cases from how many people were tested, that information is not that meaningful. The argument that I make is why, was, why were these numbers sitting for six weeks? Why were we, suppressing, were we possibly suppressing data from Miami-Dade County knowing how bad the situation was? knowing that uh, the mayor, Carlos Jimenez, had wanted to shut the county down again, had wanted to, 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 to go back to phase zero, basically, they're in phase one, and had agreed to do it, um, and then 24 hours later reversed himself uh, with pressure from Governor DeSantis, with pressure from the Miami mayor, the city of Miami mayor, Francis Suarez, um, and from significant businesses. Now, let's not forget, Miami is you know, a major international city, it's, it's the business, media, everything hub of the state. So um, there was significant pressure from business to reopen the city, uh, reopen the county, uh, which makes you ask, did they hold this data and then dump it on a day when they knew the numbers were down across the rest of the state so it didn't create uh, a, 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 a really uh, noticeable spike in cases? And... They were able to suppress the data when it really mattered uh, and when decisions were made not to shut down Miami-Dade County. Decisions were made to elect uh, the Miami Marlins Major League Baseball team play. And then a half the team or a significant number of players contracted COVID-19. Remember that? Um, and, 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 and so on and so forth. Was the decision uh, was it suppressed? So that the decision was made that, that Florida International University and the University of Miami and Barry University and, and all the colleges in, in Miami-Dade County reopened for the fall semester. Uh, what? So we'll get into the, I'll get into it now. This other point of data suppression, which is that the positive percentage, as the state is calculating it, has been skewed. So what the state has decided to do in order to make the situation look better than it is, is that they take... So if you test, if, if I'm individual A, bro, and I take five COVID tests, and I test positive once and negative four times, all five tests are thrown into the mix. And basically, I count as 20% positive. Here, here, here's what the game is. 
Then they lower the, 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 the percentage of positives. So basically what Johns Hopkins and other data scientists and people like my friend Dupoon have done is they've gone and, and figured, uh, uh, figured per person, a person either tests positive or, or they test negative and count them no more than twice, right? So if they do test negative and then they test positive, or they test positive and then they test, test negative, you count them twice. But if they counted, if, if they tested positive once and then negative four times, um, or someone took three COVID tests and t- tested negative all three times, you only count those people once, right? So um, by counting them once, the positive percentage in the state goes up from about 10, 10 or 11% as it's been hovering around for the last several days, to, uh, according to the state's own uh, data, to 15 or 16%. It's, uh, it's a pretty dramatic jump. And remember, even with the state manipulating data, even with the state playing this game with the data, we were at, today we were at uh, close to 11% statewide. You're not safe. They you're not, there's, no, um, there's no safe level until you're under 5%. So any, if you're over 5%, it's recommended you be shut down or you don't advance in phases. So essentially Florida jumped to phase two on June 4th. The positive percent at that point was 3.2% statewide. Within a week, the number had jumped over five. And instead of um, going back to phase one, we persisted in phase two. The only change that was made was the shutting down of the bars um, by, uh, by the secretary of uh, uh, business and professional regulation, um, Halsey Bashirs, and uh, uh, and then there were bars that defied it. You know, I want to uh, uh, give our friend uh, Rachel Pienta in in uh, in, in Crawfordville in Wakulla County some credit. She uh, learned about a bar that was uh, open and packed in Tallahassee, and and begged and pleaded with the with the state to shut them down, and they did. They took away their liquor license. But um, you know, there were bars that were open openly defying it. So COVID continued to spread. Um, so we don't have control of this, and the data is not reliable at this point. That's coming from the state. There is reliable data. You just have to um, go to Johns Hopkins. You have to go uh, anywhere that's not the CDC or DOH, uh, CDC from the federal level or C, uh, DOH. Uh, and to the CDC point, you know, you've written a great article about that that I recommend everybody read at the floor of the squeeze. There is a uh, uh, ma- massive... Uh, uh, chicanery going on at the federal level in terms of numbers. Well, and it's so obvious, it doesn't seem like it should have to be said, but the, these data represent real people. So everyone who is a positive test, that is somebody's family member who could possibly go on to have chronic symptoms for quite some time. It could be somebody who didn't make it through the illness. It could be a family that could ill afford to have any kind of crisis happen, uh, which is just about every family I know. Um, You know, these are real people behind this data. This isn't just business uh, information, like a balance sheet where where checks are tabulated and, you know, you've got a profit and a loss. These are actual real-life people we're talking about. 
I'm at the point where I, don't, I think that there are a significant number of people in the Republican Party who just do not care if people get sick and die. And uh, this sounds terrible. I know the backlash Alan Grayson got on the floor uh, when, he, you know, when he said that on the floor uh, of, the, uh, of the House, right? You know, their plan is to die. For, they want people to die quickly. And I always thought, well, I love Congressman Grayson. I thought, yeah, that's a little over the top. Um, that's crass. You know, no, no one thinks that way. After these last four or five months, I think, um, I think that that sentiment, you have to think about large numbers of Republican elected officials, right? I mean, they, they, they clearly are not concerned about public health in this country, right? Well, you're describing an ideological uh, competition between capitalism and uh, the human condition and where that one set of people, the Republicans and the Trump administration in particular, the side that they fall down on is, is capitalism at all costs. And we're at a place where capitalism and human conditions are in a major conflict, like flesh and blood conflict. We've had a 90% increase in COVID cases in U.S. children in the last four weeks because of school opening. And I feel like a culture that is prepared to sacrifice their children for this capitalist endeavor that, that is in conflict with the human condition, I almost feel like the tendencies in that particular culture are so dark that we've got a bigger problem on our hands. It keeps reminding me of the fall of Rome and, and, and revolutionary France and the, um, uh, the, the, the fall of Yugoslavia especially. You know, like we're, we're at a point of conflict where something has to give. Yeah, I, I mean, the fall of Yugoslavia ended in genocide. Um, and, and it ended with the U.S. and the U.K. Right, and NATO having to intervene, right? And obviously, we know one of the uh, one of the things that ended up happening in 1999 was that the uh, U.S. bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. Um, we're hoping we don't get to that point, right? Because that was uh, a country breaking up on ethnic lines. It was bloody. It was neighbor turning against neighbor, particularly in Sarajevo. But it feels like that, right? And it feels like these people that. I felt, and maybe, maybe I was naive, maybe I was too nice all these years. These, these people on the right that I thought I could talk to, I thought maybe I had some common ground with, I thought, you know, I could talk to them about the democratic establishment because, you know, we both don't like the neoliberals, we both don't like uh, uh, some of the things the Obama administration does, et cetera, that I realized that, that these people are not only, not only do I have nothing in common with them from a values perspective, but they actively want to see um, the country remade along their lines of ideological thinking. So um, it's been a big wake-up call for me. I mean, the reaction to COVID is, is kind of the final straw for me in terms of being uh, 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 reconciliatory with people on the right and, and bipartisan and all these, these nice things we throw around and then this idea of, uh, of consensus building. Uh, you can't build consensus with people that are – uh, anti-data, anti-science, and, and uh, have uh, parked their critical thinking skills somewhere far away. So uh, this is where we're at now. And I, I'm not, you know, I, I didn't vote for Joe Biden in the, in the, in the primaries. I, I'm not 
a, a huge fan of, of, of what, what he's doing. But I, I don't think there's any alternative for this country at this point, right? I mean, I, I don't know what happens. So if Trump gets reelected or uh, subverts the election and, and stays in office, which is a, a fear I, I actively have. I know that he sounds a little too conspiratorial for some listeners, but I think it's, it's a serious problem, potential problem that we need to be aware of. Um, I don't know if this country sticks together. I think in you, you, the Yugoslavia scenario with, with Hitler, with, excuse me, sorry, uh, not Hitler, uh, with, with uh, Milosevic kind of being the, uh, the Trump, right? Trump playing the Milosevic. It's a, it seems far-fetched, but all these things we thought were far-fetched in this country aren't. Did we actually think in this country uh, that we would have hundreds of thousands, hundreds, 160,000 people plus dead from a pandemic which was controlled much more easily in other parts of the world, including developing countries. Did we actually think 15 years ago that we would have, 15 years ago next week, we would have um, 1,836 people die in a hurricane in this country? When I grew up, uh, I would always see the death statistics from Haiti and um, the Caribbean, Dominican Republic, and then these storms, you know, there'd be a thousand of people dying, and then the storm would hit the U.S., and we'd have five deaths, right? Because we were so um, advanced in our storm prep, and we were so advanced and vigilant in how we handle hurricanes. And once Katrina happened, and our death toll was, uh, was actually like Haiti did, when they have mudslides and all these things that happen. And that happens in, like, Honduras and Nicaragua, too, when they get hit with, with tropical weather. Uh, and when I saw Irma in this state, we had 84 deaths in this state from Irma. For most of the state, it was a tropical storm. And when you see things like that, you realize uh, this country is not what we had envisioned 15, 20 years ago. And it's just so far off the rails that the idea of, of, of Trump being Milosevic is not that far-fetched. And I know there are people who say, oh, you can't say things like that. But uh, I don't think... Uh, I think that there are clear playbooks Trump is drawing from, and, and the Milosevic playbook, you mentioned Yugoslavia, that is probably one of them. Um, and uh, I think he, he, he gets excited by that sort of thing. I mean, we see his, his reverence for Erdogan. We see uh, he was very, he seems to be very pleased Duda got reelected in, in, in Poland um, by, by a very narrow margin. And actually, I think that might be the template for Trump. He's looking for that 51-49 win that Duda had, which probably had a significant amount of fraud involved in it um, in the runoff in Poland a couple of weeks ago. And so we are on the edge and let's just hope we don't fall off of it. And we are going to leave it right there for today. I want to come back and talk a little bit about the economics of pandemic in our next episode. But for today, be sure to check out Cardit Krishnire on Twitter at KKFLA737 or just search for Cardiff Krishnire. I'm Brooke Hines for Progressive News Network. You can find me on Twitter at Nashville Brooke or just search my name, Brooke Hines.